Hi everyone, you're listening to the Accents podcast on WUKY. My name is Katerina Stoikova, I'm your host, and with me is poet, writer, teacher, world traveler, Cecilia Wallach. Hi Cecilia, how are you? I'm well, Katerina, thank you. Good to be here. And good to see you in person. Yes. <laughs> you are one of those authors who is constantly working on something and has several projects in the backlog. What are you working on now? I am working on a very long project, a prose project, sort of a family history memoir um, slash murder mystery. Um, it centers around my paternal grandmother who disappeared before I was born and with whom I was always fascinated and around whom there was this almost impenetrable silence. So um, I set out to try to find out where she came from, who she was, where she went. So it's a project I've been working on for more than 20 years because having found the place that she came from, I had to reconstruct the history of the place for myself because it's a village in the lower Carpathians in the borderlands of southeastern Poland and Ukraine and it was in effect ethnically cleansed after World War II and a lot of its history was if not erased obscured. Ethnically cleansed would you say more? I could I could say a lot I don't know how much you but I always had this sense that it was a place that no longer existed and that turned out to be correct in a way. Um, the village was still there, but it was a shadow, a ghost of its former self. And I always had the idea that my grandmother's disappearance was somehow connected to this place where she had been born. She had emigrated to the U.S. as a young woman um, and she became active politically in the labor movement and eventually was part of the Communist Party USA and uh, she was all these things I've discovered some of them I knew as a child some of them I heard fragments of um, stories things whispered but the village uh, in World War II became a nationalist Ukrainian stronghold at the end of World War II, the Polish communist government, um, along with the Soviet NKVD, went in and forcibly removed everyone who was left. It had been a very, it had been a large, um, quite mixed, I think, village, mainly people who were identified as Wemko, who also sometimes identified as Ukrainian or Rusin or Ruthenian. Um, who didn't really have a, a geopolitical kind of home with which to identify themselves. So um, the Ukrainian partisan army, UPA, was considered, they were considered big troublemakers. The, the Soviets wanted to get rid of them. The Polish communists wanted to get rid of them. Uh, they were hiding out in the forests and people in the villages were... Uh, whether because they wanted to or they were not given a choice, you know, supported 
um, the guerrilla fighters. And so they were all accused, it was like guilt by association, they were all accused of supporting um, this terrorist, um, whether you be believe that or not, organization. And um, they were they were forced to leave. They were, you know, in 1947, um, some were executed, some were sent to internal concentration camps. Um, most were, uh, and of course, the population of Jewish persons and Roma persons had been eliminated when the village was occupied by the Nazis and during World War II. And then, you know, after World War II, the communist Polish troops and Soviet troops came in and they forced people had an hour to pack up what they could on a wagon and get out. And houses and fields were burned. The people who lived there say that the, the soldiers set the places on fire. Some soldiers said the people set them on fire so that nobody else could move into their homes or take over their land. Um, some houses survived, not a lot. And um, the property lines were plowed over and they made it a state collective farm, which failed. Um, what kind of research did you do? It sounds like you have done research for 20 years. I have. <laughs> I have. And the problem is I'm not, uh, I'm not a researcher. I'm not a scholar. I'm, a, I'm not a historian. I'm a poet. And um, I just had to keep well, digging. Poets make the best researchers I found. Yes. Why do yeah. you think that is? Because poets look for the emotion and dig deep and are not afraid to ask difficult questions. And I have asked some difficult questions of people. Um, and, you know, hampered as I've been by not, I speak only a tiny bit of Polish. I didn't even try to learn Polish for a long time because, one, it's such a difficult language, and two, Polish friends would, some Polish friends would say, why learn Polish? It's only spoken in this one corner of the world. But had I, um, like the historian Timothy Snyder, um, had I learned the language, I could have done more thorough research in Polish archives. But what you learn is that everybody, everybody distorts history for their own ends. And there's a lot in Polish archives that wouldn't have been available to me anyway. A lot of records were destroyed, and um, some records were... Uh, it, the history is so complicated, and I don't want to, people's okay. eyes to glaze over, but, but records were dispersed, they were destroyed, you know, they were burned, so it's really... And everybody has a different version of this history because everyone was at a different spot. Um, so my task, once I, you know, had dug into the history of the village, is to f was to find out what the politics of the village had to do with my grandmother's politics, because I eventually learned she had been murdered by the last of her husbands, and as my great uncle said on his deathbed, and politics were involved. So do you feel like some of the silence surrounding her disappearance has lifted or well I've lifted it I yeah. guess you know I've given um, talks and readings from this material 
in different places in the world. And some years ago, five, seven years ago, I um, gave a presentation in a, a bookstore performance space in Warsaw. Many, many people were there. They were all Polish people. Um, there was translation of the text I was reading. And I had this stunning realization at the end of this event that people were talking about her. Like she was a real person. She actually existed. Um, I felt for a long time that she had been effectively erased. In the family, they didn't want to remember what had happened to her. So she wasn't even kept alive in memory. What is her name? Mary, Mariah, Maria, Maria Bakhaiza Wallach Sap Kostic. She married three times that I know of, possibly four. But, um, you know, firstborn daughter in that world was always Maria. But she was called Marushka and she was called Siganka. Okay. So that's my connection to that, which was a whole. Uh. Other exploration yeah. of that. Which led to the book Tsigan, I yes, guess. Yes, exactly. Okay, well, let's tell the listeners of accents uh, what Tsigan means. Tsigan is a controversial term now, but it was, uh, my grandmother had been called Tsiganka, which meant a gypsy girl. Yeah. And when I was a little girl, my father called me Tsiganka. And he, I thought, this is a term of affection. This is something lovely. That's probably how he referred to you. Yes. Yeah. But it doesn't have to. In Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, that term doesn't normally bring warm and fuzzy feelings. With no, it. no. And it's it's complicated because, you know, the people we know most commonly as gypsies, um, even in that community, uh, and writing Tsigan, the gypsy poem, brought me into that community, made me a part of that community, which is something I cherish. But even within that community, there's a lot of disagreement about what shall we call ourselves. And it's most politically correct and considered most polite to say Roma. But Roma confuses people in the United States, which is where my audience is. Um, they think it's, it, does that refer to Rome? If you refer to these people as Romani, does that, you know, people think, oh, that means Romanian, all gypsies come from Romania. No, there's a large population of Roma in Romania, but they're very, very discriminated against in Romania. So you have a lot of Roma moving, you know, migrating all over Europe to get away from the persecution. But my fascination with that history was because of my fascination with this grandmother. Was she really a gypsy? Am I a gypsy? Is, you know, gypsies, when I was younger, seemed like a fictional people to me. I wasn't sure they were real. And I wasn't sure my grandmother had ever been real because she was so effectively erased. Uh, so that that was the beginning of that, that uh, quest, was to look for. How far along are you with this book. Are you close to finish? You say that you have worked on it for 20 years. More, yeah, yeah. Um, it's at least coming together. Uh, two years ago or three years ago, I would have said I have no idea how I'm going to pull this together. Um, but during the lockdown, you know, the lockdown was a good time to like deal with big 
you know, material with big stuff, big projects to be spread out and try to. So I made some sense of it then. Um, there's an agent who was interested, you know, five years ago. I hope she's still interested. And she said, you know, your writing is beautiful, but you have to learn to write a chapter. I was like, oh, <laughs> a chapter. <laughs> so I started writing chapters um, and really got a tremendous amount of that done during the lockdown. And then I had a kind of decent first draft. And my dear friend who is a big part of this story because she helped me, she and her husband, then husband, helped me find this village. She was living in the Carpathians. Um, she read through that whole draft and gave me notes, and now I'm going through and um, revising and editing according to those notes. And, you know, I think I'll have to do several more drafts to bring it into to shape. So... I don't know. I, I want to be in a hurry, but, um, you know, it'll just take the time it takes. As long as I'm working on it a little bit every day, uh, I feel connected to it. I really wish the best for you. Thank you. For that book and any other books that you're working on. And now I'm going to ask about uh, the poem the performance poem, Tsigan. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Tell us about, you know, how you wrote it, what inspired it, and and you recently had it republished, so with yes. new poems. Yes. I went to, I enrolled in an MFA program in 1998, after, just after my first book was published. And you know this, a lot of poets know this, you finish a first book and you're like, oh, what do I do now? because you put so much effort into bringing, you know, the book together, bringing the manuscript together, finding a publisher, and then trying to get it into the hands of readers. And um, it can be a little daunting. And so I was in this graduate program. I realized that there were I'm mostly self-taught as a poet. I studied literature, um, but I wasn't, you know, when I had one poetry workshop at Transylvania, they brought in a guest poet one year when I was there. But um, I was walking around with a book under my arm uh, called Bury Me Standing, a book by Isabel Fonseca about the Roma and her kind of ethnographic studies. Um, this was a book, I walked into a bookstore somewhere, it might have even been in Louisville, and this book just grabbed me. and. I had a mentor in graduate school who knew I was kind of obsessed with trying to understand who the, quote, gypsies were. And she said, you should write a long poem about that. You love Adrienne Rich's long poems, Sharon Dubiago's long poems, Akhmatova's long poems. Write a poem in sections. So it was homework. You know, my mentor was a good friend of mine, Eloise Klein-Healy, herself a wonderful poet. And I thought, okay, it felt like, I always think that poems have to come from an inner urgency. And this felt like a kind of a homework assignment. But there was an inner urgency there. She recognized that there was an inner urgency there. So I just started to write um, in pieces. And I just wrote in pieces for a long time. And I was traveling then. I had 
begun traveling into Eastern Europe, and I saw the situation of Roma people at that time in Eastern Europe in the first years after communism, uh, living in train station washrooms, and, um, you know, the situation was bad, and there was a lot of post, they were sort of protected under communism, and after communism, there was just really horrible, I guess what you could say, pogroms against Roma. So, and I studied what I could of the history. There wasn't a lot available uh, in the 90s. There wasn't a lot of printed material, certainly not in English, but I met wonderful people, um, Raiko Jurek and um, others in that community, and, and people, everyone who knew I was working on this piece because I talked about it maybe too much, maybe just the right amount. Uh, because people came to me. People sent me articles and photographs, and um, it was like I had this whole band of angels helping me, you know, write this poem. And then I wasn't sure what to do with it because I thought, well, who, I, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought, who would care about this? You know, I had done this for myself and for my brothers and sisters who were curious about about this as well. As kids, we were always told when we were misbehaved that it was our bad gypsy blood. And um, and I did find out that, you know, the village my grandmother came from, there was a really strong Roma presence and there was intermarriage and there was they were part of that community before World War II. Um, but my own Romaness or gypsiness is purely anecdotal. But once the book came out, all the secretiveness about whether there was Roma ancestry kind of, you know, my father's cousin said, well, of course there's gypsy blood. And my mother said, oh, I'm only worried about you traveling now that you're a public gypsy. And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know? But um, I wrote it in fragments. I I started, um, you know, I... I created a sort of timeline for myself of history, of Roma history from the time they were, we believe, expelled from uh, India and, you know, the various, and I created this timeline and I decided to use the timeline um, to kind of pin the poems to the timeline, but I also wanted the poems to be in sort of chronological order of my my search, my research, my own life. So that was really challenging, but, um, you know, what do you do? You spread pages out on the floor and you crawl around and see how you can fit them together. What did your dad say? My father was dead by then. Okay. Unfortunately, my father was dead. But my mother, um, the book came out in 2002, and I was afraid I was going to catch hell from the family for one that my mother would say it's bullshit this this isn't true and two or that she would say um you're not supposed to talk about this so you sound like the troublemaker of the family no i i was actually the, if you think i'm the troublemaker you should meet my siblings <laughs> you know i was kind of a good girl i was like the straight a student but but in a you know, a, an eavesdropper. I was, I think in every family, there's that one who takes on the role of family. Historian. Historian. Yeah. 
And, uh, and I, you know, I had this, it's the whole reason I became a writer, because I was fascinated with these stories and these secrets. But, uh, so Sigan was published in 2002. I was at that time the artist in residence at Bernheim Forest, um, which is a couple miles from where my family, where I grew up. And my brother would pick me up in the evening and uh, take me to my mom's for dinner. I was at this cabin on the grounds. And so I guess the book had been published and I had told the publisher, I'd given them a list of people to send copies to. So it was winter, but it was warm. I opened the screen door and walked into my mom's living room. She was lying back in the recliner that had been my dad's recliner. My niece, Rachel, was sprawled out on the floor. And my sister, Mary, who ran a beauty shop, she was a hairdresser, was sitting on the couch reading Sigan aloud. And I was so, I thought, oh, what are they doing? Are I'm they in making? trouble. <laughs> yeah. And I, was, I started to talk, and my mother said, shh, we're listening to this. And I thought, you know what? I don't think that winning the Pulitzer Prize could be better than this. They were wrapped. Well, they I were hope if I had the chance to find out if the Pulitz- winning the Pulitzer Prize is yes. better than this. <laughs> that would be nice. Let's not exclude that from the Yes, okay. <laughs> but, you know, and my mother later said when my next book came out, my mother who was, you know, um, a wonderful mother in every way, very eccentric, um, and you didn't necessarily, you never knew what she was going to say to you, and she was often quite critical. And when my next book came out, she said, oh, it's beautiful, honey, but Sigan is my favorite. <laughs> and I said, I am so glad you have a favorite. Yeah. So it was the book that she, she loved. I probably should have asked her more about why, but you always think there will be more time to ask. So, um, and then the book was, uh, it just took on a life of its own. Somebody asked to include it in an exhibit in Poland, and somebody was using it for an installation in Germany, and um, somebody contacted me, uh, Paula Faust, who's a documentary filmmaker who's worked a lot about the Roma, and she spearheaded this whole project. We did a, um, a performance at USC as part of their Visions and Voices program with, you know, we had a flamenco musicians, a dancer, a cantajando singer. Um, one of my students was reading the timeline. We had projections of, you know, from archival footage of the Roma. You know, 500 people showed up, including the whole Roma community from Riverside. And I, I thought, how did this happen? How did this happen? But it's really the poem. I think there was kind of a, a, a space that needed spoken into. You know, there was, there was, there was something, and uh, people were so, you know, receptive. I have taken some criticism from people in the Roma community about using Sigan, using Gypsy. Um, but even those people are really supportive of the work. And we ha- I got a grant from an anonymous benefactor to do a bilingual performance at the Pauline, the big, beautiful Museum of the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw. We did it as part of the 
commemoration of International Holocaust Remembrance Day because it, the poem in large part commemorates what happened to the Roma um, during the Holocaust. And then um, I was contacted by someone um, who was putting together an installation at Auschwitz-Birkenau about survivors. By that time, I had published to Sylvia's Press, the book was published in 2002, to Sylvia's Press offered to republish it. I wanted to, I expanded it. Um, it's pretty expanded, and I had um, met a survivor, who, uh, a Roma survivor of Auschwitz, um, and written a poem about him that was part of the new edition. And they asked for permission to incorporate this into the uh, memorial at Auschwitz-Birkenau to represent that, because he was a, a survivor and he was able to come for the 75th uh, commemoration. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't out there necessarily pushing it. I mean, people were so receptive and, um, and they found me through this. The first publisher was Coanga Press, which is a tiny little publisher in Los Angeles, wonderful publisher, but very small. And so it, um, yeah, you, you hope that happens. It, it has a life of its own, and I've surrendered to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're now, I'm now working on a performance in Los Angeles, January 19th, which uh, with a couple of um, these amazing Roma performers who um, have performed around the world, Cristo Osorio, who's a, from the Spanish Gitano community, and uh, his wife, Bogomia Della Mata, who's a, I think, Brigitka Roma. She's a Roma from, from Poland, amazing dancer and painter. And so we're going to do a performance together in Los Angeles on January 19th. How amazing. Yeah. Natasha Tretaway says that you are a poet who is passionately alive in the world. I love that quote. And for as long as I've known you, you are either traveling or have been traveling or are about to travel. Yes. What is traveling to you? What does it give you? The world, you know, just the world. I With one word, yes. (laughs) It gives you the world. I just, uh, the more I travel, the more at home I feel in the world and the more in love with the world I am. I've, I was talking to Marianne Taylor Hall the other day, and she, you know, we, we've done some traveling together, but she said, you're just, you know, I got it on a Polish train in the winter of 1999 and headed for the Carpathians, not really knowing where I would get off the train, not speaking a word of English. I was cold. I was hungry. <laughs> You know, I didn't know there wouldn't be an opportunity to get anything to eat on the train for nine hours. But as I said to to Marianne, I have traveled the world alone. Um, I'm a small woman. I'm often in places where I don't speak the language. I have never needed help and not been helped. Never whether I fell off a bus platform in um, southern Turkey or didn't know where to get off the train in the Carpathians. Um, I have never, uh, I've 
someone always appears and helps. What about your writing, though? I find it very difficult to write while traveling. Are you able to? Yes. In a <laughs> How word, do you yes. do it? Yes. Well, you know, it was a time when I thought, I want to grow up and be, you know, the female Bruce Chatwin, but not die young. I mean, if you know Bruce Chatwin's work, he was a, he was a passionate traveler. Um, he had friends all over the world with whom he stayed. Um, and in some places, he had these magnificent places to write. Um, I always remember this tower. I think it was somewhere in Italy. He had friends who lived in Italy who gave him this tower to write in. So I, you know, I have wonderful friends. Um, I'm good at carving out, you know, I need to be alone to write, but I can usually find spaces. And I have been since high school. I went to Bullet Central High School. I had a teacher named Joanne Belmer. Oh, what a name. Bullet Central High School. I ho- Wow. I'm in the Bullet Central High School Hall of Fame, which is one of my <laughs> claims to fame. But Joanne Belmer was my... I, I tell people now, I have never had a teacher um, in undergraduate or in graduate school that was better than the teachers I had at Bullet Central High. I had extraordinary teachers. And Ms. B, as we called her, was one of them. And she taught a class in modern song and verse, and she she attracted all the troublemakers and uh, channeled our creative energy and uh, taught me about contemporary poetry, um, allowed us to look at song lyrics as poetry. I forget what the question was, but that's... Oh, but she, her, her class, um, when we started this class, she said... There's one hard and fast requirement. You have to keep a journal. You have to write in it every day. And if you do, you'll pass. So I started keeping a journal then, and I never stopped. Well, there it is, another homework that led to who you are yes. and what you do. Yes, yeah. it, was a, it was the homework. I mean, I'd been scribbling things in notebooks already by then, but you know, I saw, I don't know, 15 or 16 years old, and I started that habit, and I never stopped. So when I'm traveling, I mean, when you're traveling, it's great to write in your journal because you always have something to write about at the end of the day. I always write at the end of the day. I listened to a lecture by Pico Ayer, mm-hmm. the travel writer, and he said that uh, 90% of what he uses uh, in his books, the material he uses, is notes that he writes on the first night after he arrives. Yeah, and I 90% of what I've written in my life has begun in my journals. Hmm. You know, I have a really I have a huge archive of journals at this point that I'll have to decide if I want to burn <laughs> or or uh, donate or or sell, but um, I did. I burned them. You burned I burned them. My, mine a couple of years ago. I went through a whole, you know, wow. uh, wall full of them. Yeah, pulled, pulled what I wanted to keep, and the rest of them in the fire. Yeah, yeah. I have on to on several trips. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have to decide about that. I mean, I burned my journals from high school. Mm at one point but the journal I've been keeping in a hardbound notebook hardbound like artist sketchbook since my late 20s I, I still have all of those and um, but that habit of writing every night um, it's not you know it's it, that I always find a way to do when I'm traveling even if I'm not 
in a place where I can sit and, you know, focus on a manuscript or whatever. Um, but I have places like this house where I stay in the Carpathians is a great place for me to write. Um, so I can always, always write in my journal. And traveling really feeds, you know, for me, traveling really, really feeds my inner life. I, I'm, I haven't thought too much about why that is, but it really feeds my inner life. And, and so um, when I'm traveling, keeping my journal is not, you know, the journal is more exciting than when I'm, you know, in one place, when I'm in Los Angeles. It's, it's you know, so there's, and a lot of stuff comes from there. Things you think you'll remember, uh, like a lot of material for this long memoir project comes from the journal, because you think you'll remember that conversation you had with a priest in this little village, but, you know, you go back to your notes and it's all there. Let's talk about translations. Mm -hmm. Your work has been published in translation in Polish, Hungarian, Ukrainian, Bulgarian, and Romanese. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and French and German, I think. Um, oh, of course, French yeah. and German. Yeah. 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 Cigan was published in French. Mm -hmm. um, that was a wonderful accident or I don't know, <laughs> just uh, thanks to a friend of mine, a Greek-French woman named Anastasia Politi and the wonderful translator Jennifer Bogatan. So... Uh, Do you have poet friends all over the world? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. I also aim to have many friends around the world. And I think these uh, relationships are especially, especially valuable and special because you see a person just like you at the other end of the world and that end of the world and someone that you have never met before and likely will never see again. But, you know, you see a mirror, mm -hmm. somebody who lives in a similar way, uh, like almost as if textbook, textbook poet <laughs> right there. Yeah. Yes. I don't know if I, ex I don't know if I explained it, but I think you got it. Yeah. Yeah, because you, um, I don't know, you just see the similarities. You know, you see, you know, uh, it's like a international sisterhood, brotherhood of, you know. You're my kind. Yes, yeah, yeah. 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 So, uh, so it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. I treasure that. And, you know, last year, an issue of the Atlanta Review, which is exclusively devoted to poetry, uh, and they do one issue a year that's dedicated to contemporary poets in different countries. And they had asked me to uh, edit a Poland issue. And I worked on that for several years for various reasons. But uh, in the end, it was just, you know, a couple of the poets were in Jezhov, and I was living in Jezhov, Poland. I lived there off and on for a couple of years because I had a Fulbright there at the university. But... Um, some of those poets and some poets from a poet from Wuj came and some tra some of the translators came and we did a reading uh, from the you know from the journal from the Atlanta Review 
in an art gallery on 3rd of May Street in the middle of the old town of Jezhuv, and it was standing room only. And the poet said, we've never had anything like this here because it was kind of like more an American-style event. You know, Polish events are more, you know, I would say more academic, more intellectual. They're, you know, got to be. I've been to some very lively Polish events. I've been to some Polish. I mean, part of readings in Poland where fistfights almost broke out. <laughs> so, but this was just different. It was really celebratory. There were lots of people who were not themselves poets uh, who came, friends and neighbors, and um, it was just a blast, and everyone loved it. But I feel like it was it was like in a the kind of book launch parties we have in the U.S. Do you translate yourself? I'm working on it. Okay. I'm working on it because I am studying Polish. And I mean, I did a, some translation projects uh, in Paris years ago with a, they have a, uh, there's a kind of a translation center and we had a day long uh, thing with Polish and, not Polish, with French and uh, English and American poets uh, But with the Polish poets I know, um, some of them are really, their English is flawless. So they can translate their own poems, but they also need help. And that's where I've started coming in and collaborating with, you know, poets. You're lucky when the poets are alive and you can say, what do you mean here? Um, and working on Uh, translations with them, which I find immensely fascinating and gratifying. You think it's bad being a poet when you can spend, you know, hours and days and weeks on one line? Translations even, I mean, you can spend days on like one word, you know, but it sends you deep into language. It sends you deep into language and deep into intention. I have found translations to be wonderful learning tool because it teaches you to write like this person and like this person and you don't really claim the work is yours, you're the translator, but you have learned a lot. In a, it's like writing a persona poem, you're a ventriloquist. Yes, yes, yes. And I do think, you know, that that's... Um, It's unfortunate that, I mean, I love English. I love the English language. Um, I don't have any of those bad feelings about English is spreading too much. It's a wonderful language. But it is a shame that because English is so widely spoken and the U.S. is such a big country that more poets don't learn other languages and learn to read um in the original language. I include myself in this, you know, that because it really shifts your relationship with language and being a poet is all about your relationship to language. It's true. Mm -hmm. Now I want to take the conversation back to your poetry and your chapbook, Earth. Thank you. Please tell us about this book. Oh, about this book. Honestly, I was working on poems that I weren't sure, I wasn't sure how, and this is true of both of the chapbooks I've published. I was like, well, how, how are these poems going to come together in a manuscript? I have no idea. And I saw, and some of them are what I call 
when I'm talking to myself, my weird ancestor poems, um, because they almost seem to occur to me. I seem to hear them in a collective voice. And sometimes I just, all poets have this experience. It's like, I don't know where that came from, um, which is the best experience you can have when you're writing a poem. It's the best. That's why we do it, to write something that we don't know where it came from. Um, anyway, I had started to, you know, I had some poems, and I honestly saw a call for uh, submissions that to Sylvia's Press was going to publish a chapbook. And this had worked for me once before, so I went through the poems I had that I felt were finished. Some were had been published in journals and magazines, and I printed them out, and I shuffled them around and tried to see how they spoke to one another, which is what you do when you put together a, a book-length manuscript, unless you have some other overriding strategy, like you're writing a memoir in poems. Um, you just kind of put them up against one another and see if they speak to one another, what, what kinds of connections there are. Um, so I worked with poems that I thought were already finished or um, I was confident about because they'd been published and I just, and I put together a manuscript and I sent it. And I was awarded the prize, which was a fluke, but I'll take it, <laughs> you know, I'll take it. It was, uh, um, how wonderful. Yeah. Would you like to read us several poems? I, I can, yes. And the the manuscript that I'm um, submitting now, uh, this was, as happened to me um, with Narcissus and then my book uh, Carpathia, the the chapbook became kind of a zygote. Like I, I found a way to assemble something with these poems and then it becomes like the zygote for a full-length book. What would you like to hear, Katharina? I know this is, I pulled this copy off your shelf, so. I love, I mean, I love all your poems. Thank you. But I feel like I myself learn from you a lot on your prose poems. Okay. I love prose poems. I can read the first one. Okay. Um, which, because we've talked about some of the things that went into this, and it's called What Was Promised Me. What was promised me? Nothing. A ring and some salt. Rice in the white shoes. Music. A doll. The book my mother read to me over and over when I was a child. Tigers turning to butter, to milk. An amulet from a boy who carried a knife in his pocket, too. Night. I was not promised dawn. Stars hooked to sky by my father's hands. Love like a tree I could climb to the top of and then jump down from or swing from or fly. Mercies so small I could hide each one inside a flower. Sharp white teeth. A clock made of pearls, each pearl an hour, and the hours numberless. The pink dress that disappeared, where did it go? And the tiny ballerina spinning and spinning inside a dome. A door that would open and close. No house, 
no home but the story I've traveled toward. Luck running out like a shimmer of wind, two buckets full of cold water, wood for a fire, and flame. So gorgeous. Thank you. I don't know what, I don't honestly, not sure what people like about this, but I like it. Because it's, it's, it feels to me very hermetic, mm. because all of these images are... I love the time and the occurring image of salt through your mm -hmm. poems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what about that salt? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But the clock m made of pearls was a yeah. clock my father made. Each pearl an hour. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just a literal true thing. <laughs> yes, but I think that it is especially satisfying when poems work on both literal level and then it hits you in the head that it could mean at least three or four other things. Yeah. And yeah. that's when every time you read a book, it meets you where you are. Yes. And yes. that's what makes a book classic. Yes. I hope. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I love the poem, and I'm gratified that other people, some other people love it too, and I, I don't understand why, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. You want another prose poem? Yeah, one more from the middle and then the last poem. Okay. All right, so I'm going to read this one, um, which came from, you know, being in one of those states... Uh, there's a name for it. No, I can't think of what it is. Uh, hypnogogic, hmm. when you're between sleep and waking. And I didn't know there was a word for it, but wonderful to know. Yes, yeah, I think I have this right. It's like a hypnogogic image, so it comes from there. And this is for all of those um, ancestors. It's called A Place in the Music. Once in a dream that wasn't a dream... I saw them walking away from me, or not away, but just ahead, all my dead beloveds in a shiver of silvery wind. They knew I was following and kept on, arms linked, walking side by side on a road between fields of waist-high grass, the wind tossing their hair and the hems of the flower dresses the women wore. Some uncle or other, still a boy, running after the rest. Was that joy? And what it said to me, this picture in my mind, was to not be afraid. That it's only a kind of magic, death. And the story is rich. The story goes on. I was behind them, watching them walk into the wind, when I heard the hum beginning inside me, a place in the music, high and sweet, as if they were singing or also heard the song I'd begun to hear and were glad and loved me still, the sky that silver too, although none of them turned around. What amazing storytelling. Hmm. So that's... That's how it happened. Um, oh, the last poem in the book is my um, is afterlife. 
I just learned to love the earth in a different way after I'd spent a lot of time in the Carpathians where the meadows are. You know, once um, uh, once someone asked me when um, we were watching some, I think, Kislovsky film, is Poland really like that? It was, you know, the late 90s. Because, you know, he thought it was grim. And I, I said, yeah. And he said, well, why would you want to go there? And I said, if you have never seen a Carpathian meadow in bloom, I cannot possibly explain it to you. Hmm. Afterlife. I want to be fierce and joyful and a meadow when I'm dead. Spindly flowers and waist-high grass and the shadows of clouds across that brightness shifting like so many ships in the sky. I want to be all in one place at last, but vast, a sea by the side of the road. I mean green, and I mean poppies and daisies, everything blooming at once. And I want to be again that girl who pushed into the wind, who stood up to the sun, big-mouthed and brave. I mean, if I'm going to die, let me live. Let me wade out into the darkest part of the night and name myself, wild-haired bitch of the mongrel stars, moon on her shoulders, dirt-rich, proud. Wow, stunning. And I love the long vowels. Mm. Yeah, sound is really important yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my, f you know, that's the dual impulse to tell a story and to sing. So I want to take the conversation to teaching because I know it's very important to you. You have been teaching in France, Turkey, Poland, China, where else? And what is teaching to you? How important it is? Mm, I've always felt, you know, my first teaching, I, I, I backed into teaching. I, I got into teaching accidentally um, when I started working as a poet in the schools in Los Angeles. So my first teaching was with uh, children. And I realized that if you're really teaching, you're learning as much as you're teaching. That is so true. Mm -hmm. You're learning. It's a channel that's open um, so that things go both ways. Also, it's a channel that open, uh, opens. I've had experiences um, where I'm teaching, when I'm teaching, where I'm trying to, I don't know, explain something uh, you know, to children to an audience and 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 said something I didn't know I I knew I've mm -hmm. said things I didn't know I knew it's like oh that just came through me that sounds maybe a little bit yohi ro ro but it's oh I know how it goes though yeah, yeah yeah that you you you're you're teaching it's not only that you're learning from your students but you learn from yourself when you're teaching you you learn what you know that you didn't know you knew, you you find ways to articulate things that you hadn't ever articulated before. And also, when I was working with um, 
you know, teaching children, I was constantly on the search for poems that I was excited about, that I found exciting, that I thought the kids would find exciting. And uh, and I really learned to read poems in an exciting way because you've got like 35 seven-year-olds, you know, and you're going to read them Walt Whitman. You had damn well better bring it to life, you know, and and I did, and they loved it, and I had, you know, I remember a little girl running around saying, I want to be like, I'm only going to marry a guy who's like Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman, <laughs> who knows a woman is as great as a man, you know, she was just like, I want to be a transcendentalist too, I'm like, gosh, she's eight, you know, great, but she found her calling, obviously, yeah, so, um, you know, so I, I found out that I loved it when I was teaching what, you know, in my first teacher, um, Jack Grapes, when he sent me into a classroom to do a workshop with kids, he said, don't worry, the way to love, to, the way to teach something you love is to love it. And that served me really well as a teacher. So, and, uh, and teaching in uh, students whose first language is not English is also really um, enlightening. Yeah, the way they use English, right? The way mm -hmm. that yeah, they use English and really. And then you know, when I was teaching, I was teaching American literature in China, and just was so interesting to find uh, different ways uh, to allow the students to engage with the literature. I mean, we use music and film, and and then I, because of my obsession with history, I was able to provide a lot of context, you know, for um, the literature. Well, here is a question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing. What is the most important thing you teach your students? If there is one thing that you want them to remember from your class or workshop, what is it? That's the MIT segment. <laughs> the MIT? Yes. MIT, most important thing. Oh, wow. To read. No substitute for that, right? There's, there's no mm. substitute for reading, yeah, to read, you know. And um, and I also like to quote Cyril Connolly, who said, better to write for yourself and have no audience than to write for an audience and have no self. <gasps> oh, totally true, totally <laughs> true. So, so there's that, because sometimes, you know, you have that hunger to... Um, you know, we have it in ourselves sometimes and, and see it in students where they just want, you know, they just want to be heard. They just want to, you know, reach someone. But you're really just, uh, Ginsburg said, follow your inner moonlight. I think writing for approval, audience, that is the surest way to pretentious mediocrity. Yeah, and to cut yourself off from your own most original material. Yeah. Well, to also to, <laughs> to cut away from the pleasure of writing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. To the true joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it should always be a pleasure. It should always be a pleasure. Sometimes it's really hard, but it's a pleasurable difficulty. So your most important thing is read. Mm -hmm. And I mean... That is actually consuming poetry. Mm -hmm. And poetry could be consumed at readings. 
which mm. brings me to your online reading series. Oh, yes. Yes, yes tell yes, us yes. about it. Um, this was also sort of a lucky accident. I, I um, have an assistant. Uh, I call her my co-pilot, Carmen Palmer. She's also a poet. She lives in Vieques, Puerto Rico. And I believe it was her idea. During the lockdown, we were all missing poetry readings. And she said, well, let's have a reading on Zoom. And she does the heavy lifting in terms of, um, you know, uh, publicizing and taking care of the tech. And she has great, I've seen a lot of readings on, on Zoom that the tech is not handled real well. She's She's got it down. And we started, you know, inviting a couple of poets. We had, you know, people in the community, you know, we... Um, you know, people who were taking Zoom workshops with me, and uh, we started this, it's the last, usually the fourth Sunday of every month. We found a time that would work on both coasts as well as in Europe, because I have, you know, poets I know in Europe I wanted to, to bring into this. And I don't know, it just, I don't know what our secret sauce is, but uh, the series has become really popular. We always have 50 to 100 people in our audience. Uh, we usually have two poets who read. I love uh, inviting poets and matching people up there, you know, whose latest book would be a good compliment to this, you know, and voices. And I always read something. I, I'm, at the beginning, I made a promise to always read something new at the end, but that's a hard promise for me to keep because I write slowly and I it takes me a while to feel ready to present something, but I try to uh, try to do that. Uh, we have a discussion afterwards that's always really lively, and uh, you know we're now booked six months in advance. We had uh, this past year we had Diane Seuss who won the Pulitzer and the National Book Award reading for us. Um, in February we'll have uh, Kevin Prufer who has a wonderful new book and Naomi Shihab Nye who's, you know, iconic. We've had, you know, Cyrus Cassells now uh, always reads with us when he has a new book out, which is pretty often. So Cyrus will be reading for us again this year. And um, it's just, it's a lot of fun. And it has, um, we have a lot of people who are there every reading in the audience. And it really has created a community that keeps expanding because because every poet who reads, you know, brings some new people uh, into the audience, and those people often stay with us and, you know, come back for the next reading and the next and the next. And, and every April we have an open mic for that community, for the, the people who are, are there. So it's, it's a lot of fun, and now people come to me and ask, you know, or they contact Carmen to see if they can get a spot in the schedule and we can usually we can usually make that happen and it's great it's just how can our listeners attend this series how can they it's always i always post uh, on my website okay uh, not on my website, on Facebook. We always post the readings. Probably the best thing to do to get onto the mailing list is to write to Carmen. And I'm going to tell you that uh, address. It's 
my name, C-E-C-I-L-I-A dot W-O-L-O-C-H dot assistant, A-S-S-I-S-T-A-N-T um, at gmail.com. Great. And she will put you on the list. I also do a, a monthly newsletter that is kind of fun, and uh, that includes all the announcements of readings and workshops, and so people can ask Carmen to put them on the list for that, too. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cecilia. Thank you, Katerina. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your personality, um, your poetry, your big adventurous heart. <laughs> Thank you. What a lovely thing to say. I'm so glad to know you. So thanks for having me.